You know, during the month of uh, December, um, I've been preaching a series in the book of Isaiah, and that series has been entitled, um, Hope Has Come. And each week, what we've done is we've looked at a particular group, a series of scripture passages in the latter part of the book of Isaiah uh, that are referred to or known as the servant songs. Now, the purpose of these servant songs is to help us to understand that there is a servant of God who we've identified to be um, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that servant of God would bring hope to a hopeless world. That's why God was sending him into the world. And what we've seen in, over the last couple of weeks is we've seen specifically in these different, um, these different servant songs different ways in which he would make that possible. For example, two weeks ago, we saw that Isaiah identified that servant as a servant of justice and that he would bring hope by bringing justice to an unjust world. Last week, we saw that he would bring hope or he was identified, that servant, as a servant of obedience and that he would bring hope by bringing a perfect obedience to a perfectly disobedient world. And this week, we see in Isaiah chapter 53 we see that Isaiah describes or refers to the servant as a servant of great suffering. Now, he's described that way not because he's going to bring great suffering to this world, but he's going to bring hope because he's going to take the world's suffering, those to whom he would ultimately save upon himself. That's what would bring hope to a hopeless world. Now, Isaiah chapter 53, the chapter is really a unique, a very interesting chapter. And the reason for that primarily is because it is written in the past tense. It's written as though all of the events that are recorded in chapter 53 have already taken place. And what's unusual about that is they don't actually take place until far in the future. They don't actually take place until 700 years from this particular point, but yet they're written in past tense. And they're unusual as well, or it's interesting as well, because it's written from the perspective of a group of Jews who live during the first coming of the servant that is prophesied by Isaiah. They were there during his life, and they were there during his death. And here in chapter 53, what we find is really their testimony and their description of the suffering that that servant uh, took part in. And so... The primary theme of this morning's message is really the suffering of a servant. And what we're going to find is we don't have time to really cover the entire chapter, so we're just going to look at the first six verses. And these six verses can be divided up into two major sections. And so these two sections really give us two aspects of the specific sufferings of God's servant that he endured while he was here. So let's take a look at this suffering that he endured here. First of all, what we see in the text of Scripture, beginning in verses 1 through 3, is we see the suffering caused by a rejecting people. We see the suffering caused by a rejecting people. Now notice, if you will, in verse 1, what we find here is, I just told you, and I told you the truth, but it was kind of a lie. I told you that this was written from the perspective of um, a group of Jews that lived during the time of Jesus, that Jesus lived here on earth. And it does, uh, verses 2 through the rest of the chapter. But verse 1, it's actually spoken of from the perspective of the prophets, Isaiah and the rest of the prophets who foretold of the coming of this servant, the servant, Jesus Christ. So these prophets, this is, they ask two questions. First of all, they ask, who has believed what he has heard from us? 
Now, what they're asking is this. They're asking how many people who lived during the time of the coming uh, Messiah, of Jesus Christ, actually believed that he was the fulfillment of all of the prophets' prophecies of old, including what Isaiah is restoring here. He asked him that question. Now, this question is a rhetorical question, which simply means that you don't really have to, he doesn't have to give an answer. And the reason is because the answer should be obvious. And the answer to this question is not many. In other words, not very many people believe that Jesus, during the time of Jesus' life, that he was the fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah and all the Old Testament prophets. They just didn't believe it. And so they ask another question. They say, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, that phrase, arm of the Lord, is used in the Old Testament many times. And each time that it's used, it's used specifically to describe God's power and ability to be able to save and to be able to to rescue his people out of torment and out of suffering. That's how that phrase is used. And so what they're asking here is this. When Jesus came to this earth, did people who lived during that day, how many of those people that lived that saw him actually saw him as the strong arm of God who had the ability and the power to be able to save people from their suffering? And the answer, rhetorical question again, but the answer of this, the common answer of this, the obvious answer is not many. Now, those people who lived during the time of Christ, those Jews that lived during the coming of Jesus Christ, of all people should have believed in Jesus Christ. Would you agree with that? They had all, all in their culture was all of these writings, all these prophecies of all the prophets of old. They had heard about his coming. They should have recognized him as such. Not only that, but they were able to actually see him with their own eyes. And they were able to see the miracles that he had performed. They saw the power of God working through him, doing things that no other man could possibly be able to do, and yet they did not believe. So the question is, why? Why did those that Jesus came to during that first century, why did they not receive Jesus as the servant that was prophesied by Isaiah and the prophets? Well, at verse 2 they begin to respond. That group of Jews who were there begin to respond and begin to tell why they did not believe. And they give really kind of two reasons. The first reason they're rejected is that he was rejected because of an unpopular perspective. He was rejected because of an unpopular perspective. Now, look at verse 2. He says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Now, the plant in the root referred to Jesus Christ, the servant himself. And when it says that he grew, this plant in this root grew out of dry ground, what it's referring to specifically is his humble origin in which he grew. In other words, they're talking about his background, where he came from, where he grew up. And the Bible teaches us in the New Testament that we find that where did he grow up? He grew up in the city of Bethlehem which was really an an insignificant city, a very impoverished, poor city. That's where he got his beginning. And then he grew up as a young man, as a carpenter's son, basically in poverty in the city of Nazareth. Now, what's interesting about Nazareth is Nazareth was a despised city. You didn't want to be from Nazareth. It was coming from the wrong side of the tracks. And so later in Jesus' ministry, when he finally comes and has his public ministry, people ultimately come to Jesus, and this is what they say to him. They say, when they hear him teach and they hear him, that they hear him or see him do miracles, then the people say of him in John chapter 1, verse 47, can anything good come out 
of Nazareth? So what they're suggesting is the reason they had an unpopular perception of Jesus, they just couldn't conceive that this could be God's man because of his background and where he was from. And not only that, but because of his common appearance. Notice the next verse. He says, or the next part uh, of that verse, he says, and no beauty, or he says, and he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Now, what he means there is this is, he just didn't look like a king. I mean, what he's describing is that the king of kings and the lords of lords is going to come, and then when they looked at him, they're like, mm, no, he just, this guy just doesn't measure up. This is him? No, this can't possibly be him. Now, folks, in the world in which we live, looks are important. Would you agree? In the world, not in the church, but in the world, right? Uh, they've even done tests that some people, Newt Gingrich, right now, I'm not, talking about, I'm not trying to specifically talk about politics, but they go, he can never really be elected. And they said, why? He goes, he doesn't look the part. Look at him. He's frumpy. He's got three chins. Nobody is going to vote for him. He does not look presidential, as what they've ultimately, a lot of people have actually said. Well, the same thing was when Christ came upon the scene. See, they wanted a king to look the part. We know this from their history. You know, God said, hey, look, you're not going to have a human king because I want to be your king. And then they sat there and said, well, God, that's great, but we'd really like to be like all the other nations. Could you just give us a human king? We'll still identify you as the ultimate king. And he says, okay, so he allows them to have a human king. And who do they choose? A man by the name of Saul. We find out that they chose him, and why did they choose him? Because he was a great leader, because he was a great man? Nope, primarily because of the way that he looked. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 20, we find out that he was a head taller than everybody else. Now, folks, you usually don't elect and try to get people that are four foot tall to be able to lead you, right? You want the big guy. If he's going to lead you into battle, you want the big man. And what they say here is when Jesus came, he just didn't have that kind of form. He just didn't look like the kind of guy that they were looking after to be able to lead him. He just didn't fit the part. And then notice this, not only that, and he says, in no beauty that we should desire him. You know, folks love to follow and to admire beautiful people, right? They want to be one of a hundred, the top 100 beautiful, most beautiful people in the world, people's most beautiful people. They, that is the, the end all to be all. They, they, they just love that. They, 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 they love to cheer for beautiful people, not the not so good looking people, all right? I, I, that's sad, but this is the essence of the world. And so what they're in, in essence saying is, hey, look, Jesus really just didn't catch your eye physically. He just really wasn't all that attractive at all. There was nothing for us to draw our attention to him. And this was contrary to some of their former kings. Stop and think of the greatest human king that they had to that point. Who was it? It was David. And what does the Bible say about David? The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 12 that David had a fine appearance and a handsome and handsome features. That's how we want our king to ultimately look. We want him, we want him to be good to look at. And you know what the Bible says? Jesus just wasn't really all that good to look at. So he says by, by here, one of the reasons, and I believe it's the surface reason why they rejected Jesus, was because of an unpopular perception. He just didn't look the part. Now, we see that that's not the only reason why they rejected him. It was not only because of an unpopular perception, but he was rejected because of an uncomfortable perspective, an uncomfortable perspective. Now, look at verse 3. He says, and he was despised and rejected by men. Now, the word despised there literally means it describes the extent of how contemptible and how despicable and how revolting 
Jesus was to the people that he came to save. Their stomachs were literally turned when they saw Jesus, when they talked with Jesus. He was repulsive to them. And the Bible says that they despised him, and, and because of that, they rejected him. Rejected there literally means to cease or to be stopped. They wanted nothing more than to shut him off to the rest of the community. Even his own town, even his own people that he grew up with sat there and said, you know what, we really just don't want to have much to do with this Jesus character. His, uh, and it reminds us of the scriptures, of course, that say in, in, in chapter one in verse, uh, John chapter 1 and verse 11, that he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. It's the fulfillment of that scripture right here in Isaiah chapter 53. And then it goes on, it, it says to us, he says he was despised by men. And notice this, they describe him. These Jews that were there during that time who rejected him begin to describe him. And here's how they describe him as a, as a man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs. Now, if you're going to make a distinction between sorrows and griefs, the distinction is this. Sorrows speak of emotional turmoil and suffering. Griefs speak of physical, very severe physical suffering. Now understand something, when they mention this, they're not suggesting that this is something that this servant just every once in a while periodically experienced. This is what the outside of those that hated God, when they hated Jesus, when they looked at him, this is how they described him. The number one characteristic of this man, Jesus, that they saw, the way that they would describe him is that he was absolutely saturated with emotional and physical suffering. That was the life of this man. That's how they described him. And then notice in the very next section, it says this. He says, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now the question comes at this point, why did they hide their face from him? Why did they esteem him not? Why did they despise him? This is not just one of those things where, hey, we could do with or without him. They didn't want to be anywhere around him. Well, it's not because, I do not believe it's because somehow he was hideous to look at. That he was, oh man, I just can't even look at that guy. He's so unattractive. I don't think it's to that extent. I think instead the reason they couldn't look upon him was not because of a hideous uh, appearance, but rather because of a holy perfection. In, in simple terms, Jesus rubbed them the wrong way. It was just hard to be around this guy. And the reason is, is because his goals, his desires, his pursuit, his passions were in stark contradiction to the goals and the dreams and the desires and the pursuits of those that he came to save. You know, many times folks will come and when they first are, are born again, one of the most common questions when people come to faith in Jesus Christ is this, is, hey, listen, man, do, can I still keep my old friends? Are my friends still going to be my friends, those that, you know, uh, that I had before I came to faith in Jesus Christ? And I went there and said, man, there's nothing wrong with you keeping those friends. I said, the problem is they're just not going to keep you anymore. And they said, well, why is that? And I said, well, listen, this whole time you guys have been on the same exact track. You guys have been pursuing the same exact thing. Man, you've been going with the flow for the rest of the world. You've had everything in common. I said, your eternal destination has been the same. Your fallen nature has been the same. The desires for the things of the flesh, the lust of eyes, the pride of life, you've shared in all of those things with them. And so you had everything in common. And I said, but now that you've been born again, that you've been regenerated, 
And now God is beginning that process of, re- of, 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 of sanctification. You're going to become more and more unlike them, which means that you're going to begin to go against the flow. And when you have two things going against each other, what happens? Friction's, friction is caused. And I said, and it's not even though that you're going to sit there and go, hey, listen, I'm not doing it anymore because that's a sin and you should stop it because you're a sinner. I said, you don't even have to say anything. It's going to be just the fact that you no longer take part in the things that they were taking part in that it's going to rub them the wrong way. It's going to cause friction and they're not going to be anywhere around you. Now, folks, if that is true, if that is true for fallen you and I who are nowhere close to be perfected, how much more true is that for a perfect Savior, Jesus Christ? When he comes around, we love it when we sit there and go, hey, look, I know this is wrong. Let me just tell you what I'm thinking. I'm sure that you can identify. This is what I did. I know that it was wrong. Have you ever done that? Yes. You get with Jesus and you say, do you know what I'm talking about? And he sits there and goes, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never experienced that before. And so what the people do is, Every time he speaks and every time he acts, it reminds them that they are going the wrong way and he can't stand it. And folks, let me tell you something. That is the reason why so many of your friends and family that you ask to come to church and you want to speak Jesus about, please do not misunderstand the reason that they're antagonistic about it and they say, I just don't want to hear it. The reason they don't want to hear it is because it rubs against the grain. The reason they don't want to hear it is because it reminds them of their own lostness. It reminds me, it was the same, the true for you and I. Do we understand that? Before we come to faith in Jesus Christ, maybe you came to faith later. And when people said, hey, man, let me tell you about Jesus. Why don't you come to church? Why don't you come to a Bible study? And you sit there and say, no, thanks, but no thanks. Why? Because you knew the two things were absolutely contrary to each other. And if they kept pushing him, what would happen? Man, speak to the hand. I don't want to talk with you. Don't tell me about your Jesus. And that's the place that they were in. John Piper, I think, gives a great, great, uh, <clears throat> concludes this well. He says, in other words, his whole demeanor, speaking of Jesus, his style, his view of life, and money, and possessions, and lust, and prayer, and worship, and humility, and fear, and faith, none of, it, none of it endorsed our own rebellion. None of it said, hey, you're all right. Instead, what it said is, you're on the wrong path. You're not all right. He said, we didn't feel endorsed around Jesus. He was so lowly and unimpressive that our aspirations, what we wanted to be for power and reputation, felt evil. His happy, pover- his happy poverty, that is him being happy and content with nothing at all and our wanting more and more feel foolish. His willingness to suffer for others made our cravings for comforts feel selfish. He says, so why did the people end up turning on him and rejecting him? It wasn't just because he didn't look the part. The problem is they didn't, he didn't look like them. And it exposed their weakness. They couldn't have anything to do with it. So they hated him and they wanted to kill him. So they rejected him. So we see, first of all, the suffering caused by rejecting people. Secondly and lastly, we see a suffering endured by an undeserving substitute. Now, how do you think that this servant is going to respond to that kind of treatment? How do you think that a servant who has come to serve a group of people, but yet is rejected even by his own people, pushed out, rejected, made fun of, humiliated, completely and fully despised, how do you expect him, who is actually in the right, he was rejected for no fault of his own. He was actually rejected just for doing everything right. How do you expect a person like that to treat these that have rejected him? Well, we expect him, or at least I would in my heart, 
expect him to despise and to reject those that rejected him. But the Bible says that's not his approach. That's not what happened with this one. The servant did something completely and utterly different. What we find here in the word of God is, in verse 4, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. What we see here now is we see a complete radical change of mind and and a radical change of view of who Jesus was and and what he was all about. Here he says there in the latter part of verse 4, let me explain that first. He said, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. They said, when we begin to yell out, crucify him, crucify him, at the cross that day when we saw him carrying, we wanted him to die. And when he died on that cross, we believed that he was suffering at the hand of God because of his own sinfulness. We believe because of his sin, he deserved to die. He goes, but that all changed. We had a radical change of mind. Here's what it is. Yes, we were right. He was dying at the very hand of God. He says, but it was not for his sin. He goes, it was for our sin. And he says here in the beginning of verse 4, he says, surely he has borne. That means that he has taken, he goes, our griefs. And he has carried our sorrows, the word carried in the Old Testament can be used in two different ways. One, it could be to come alongside somebody and help them carry their burden. So they carry some, we carry some. But the way that it's used here is, no, I came to take the burden completely and fully off of them onto myself, he says. This is how he responds to the rejection. This is how he responds to the hatred. He takes their sorrows and he takes and he carries, they, or excuse me, he takes their griefs and he takes their sorrows. Remember what griefs and sorrows stands for. Griefs is the emotional suffering. The sorrows is the physical suffering. He says, I'm going to take their emotional and physical suffering that was caused by their own sin. All the suffering that they have taken and is placed on them and will be taken on them as a consequence of their sin, I'm going to take it off them, and I'm going to take it and place it upon myself. What an amazing servant this is. But then he says here, he says, he touches us the kind of suffering that the servant endured in verse 5. He says, but he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. He was wounded. The word literally means that he was pierced, or he was pierced through. He was pierced through with nails in his hands and his nails in his feet. We read that in the New Testament. And his side was pierced with a Roman spear and ran through and out came and flowed blood and water. So he was wounded, but it was also that he was crushed as well. Now the word crushed means to be crushed or the injuries that one that occurs to a person that is underneath a great weight. What crushed him? What was this great weight that was upon him? The great weight that crushed him was the sin of those to whom he would save. The sins were so great. There were so many that it literally crushed him on the cross. And this is what he says he does. And what is he crushed for? And and what is he wounded for? He says, our transgressions and our iniquities. Now, there's a distinction between the two. The transgressions speak of those sins that you and I willfully rebel against God. It's a type that you and I sit there and go, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. 
That's what that word means there with transgressions. Now, the word iniquities means this. It refers more to our sin nature, that we were born in sin and that sin saturates every part of our being. He says the reason that he was wounded and the reason that he was crushed was to take upon himself our willful rebellion against him and our sinful nature upon him. That's what kind of suffering he took part in on that cross. And then notice this, we see the outcome of the suffering of the servant that he endured. The Bible says in the very next section of verse 5, he says, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The word chastisement means the discipline. The discipline of what? The discipline of God. He says, and it fell on him, why? and he goes, in, in, in that chastisement brought us what? It brought us peace. Peace with who? Peace with God. You say, why in the world will we ever have to have peace with God? Aren't we all children of God now? The Bible says before we come to faith in God, we are enemies of God. We are at enmity with God, which means all of his vengeance and all of his wrath because we've rebelled against him is storing up against us for the day of judgment. And the Bible says here that what happens is that Jesus substitutes himself and he comes and he takes the place of God's discipline, that discipline which should have fallen on us, he takes our beating instead. And because he takes the beating and satisfies the wrath of God, he goes, guess what? Now, because there is no more wrath towards us, we can be at peace with God. And he says it's not only peace that he accomplishes, of his suffering, but it's also the healing of our sins. He says, and with his stripes, we are healed. Now, the stripes there, we know that he was beaten with a cat of nine tails over and over and over again until he was completely disfigured. But the word stripes literally means all of the marks that he took from the beating on his body. From the crown of thorns, to the nail-scarred hands, to the feet, to, to, to the whippings, to everything else. He took upon himself, and what was the outcome of that? He goes, by this we are what? We are healed. By his stripes we're healed. Now today, people have tried to use that specifically, and you'll hear this on the radio and different TV evangelists, and what they'll say is this, to say, see, this is the scripture that we know that God is going to heal us every time we pray for physical health. But in context, he's not referring primarily to physical health. He's talking about spiritual health and well-being. Our biggest problem, folks, is not physical. It's spiritual. And he came to hear us spiritually. Now, there is an eschatological, that is an end times fulfillment of that promise. God is going to give us a new body that he's going to rid us of all the pain and the suffering, which was ultimately caused by sin He says, that will ultimately come, but here he's saying, the reason that he took those stripes is so that you and I would be healed spiritually unto God. Now, what we see finally in this very last last verse of 6, what I want you to see is that this group of Jews, from the beginning of verses 2 through 2 and 3, in verses 4 and 5, that they experienced once again a radical change of mind. A radical change of mind. First of all, we see in verse 6, we see a change of mind concerning themselves. Listen how they speak of themselves. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Long before, they thought that they were right. When they cried out, crucify him, they looked at him as though he were the sinner. And the truth of the matter is, they find out that it was they who were the sinners. It was they who were guilty before God. It was not Jesus. And so they have a change of view and a change of mind of who they are. Secondly, they have a change of mind concerning 
Jesus Christ himself. He says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When they first saw Jesus, you know what they thought he was? He was a troublemaker. He came in masquerading to be a king that he was not. That he came upon the thing and he had so much hope and aspiration for him, but really he just fizzled out. He, he did nothing but cause trouble for the Jewish people. That's the way that they viewed him. But then by the end, we see this. They viewed him as him dying on that cross for what? That for his own sin, being afflicted and being disciplined by God. But then they came and they saw him not as a troublemaker, but as a suffering substitute for their sins. He says again, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He died not for his sins, but he died as a substitute for us. Do you want to know what you call a person that has this kind of radical change of mind about themselves and about the person of Jesus Christ? You call him born again. That's what salvation is. It's a radical change of mind of who I am and who Jesus is and why he came. Now, the question is, how do you view this one we call Jesus? Do you view him? Some people today view him as nothing more than a troublemaker. Somebody that's just causing him more pain. The reason it's more pain is because he's holy and we're not, and he rubs us the wrong way. There are some people who are here who have been invited by friends. That's how you view this Jesus. Man, you, you are just here because your wife nagged you enough, or you're just here enough because your husband nagged you enough, or because your parents nagged you enough, and you're sitting there going, man, Jesus to me is nothing more than a troublemaker, right? I'm right. I know how to live my life. I'm fine the way that I'm living. Or do you view him as I believe that many of us do? We sit there and we view him not as a troublemaker, but some of us here, especially around this Christmas season, we view him as a suffering substitute for our sins. Man, if that's where you are, that's a wonderful place to be. That's a place where we should be now that we're looking towards Christmas. And we, God's people, should be the most rejoicing during this time of year. Why? Because we know that he came to substitute himself for our sin. He took our beating for us. You know, I think just in closing the illustration, it's so hard to be able to describe what Christ did for us because every single illustration you try to use for the suffering uh, substitution just falls so short. And then some of them are just trying to mark to try to really begin to move us emotionally and things. Here's what moves us emotionally, the truth of God's word. That's what should move us. Do you guys get that? Just the truth that he died for us if the spirit is moving, that's what moves us to praise him and to worship him. But I want to tell you and close this last illustration. A small boy had been consistently late for dinner. And on one particular day, his parents had warned him not to be late again, but he must be on time. But of course, like usual, he arrived later than ever before. He found his parents already seated at the table, about to start eating. And quickly, he sat in his place. Then he noticed what was set before him, a slice of bread and a glass of water. There was silence as he sat staring at the plate of awesome food. And he felt crushed that he didn't have it. Suddenly he saw his father's hand reach over, pick up his plate, and set it before himself. Then his dad put his own full plate in front of his son, smiling warmly as he made the exchange. And when the boy became a man, he said, All my life I have known what God was like by what my father did that day. The truth of God's substitution for us is that he demanded for us to be justly 
condemned for our sin because of a rebellion against him. But what he did was he took our plate of suffering. He took our cup of suffering and he exchanged it with his cup, of, his cup and his plate of bounty. And he gave it to us undeserving sinners. Now, folks, when you understand that, that's when you and I truly have a Merry Christmas. That's when we understand the glory of this time of season. So my question for you is just twofold. Number one, have you ever been gripped by that truth? How do you view Jesus? Have you ever had a change of mind? Have you ever had a change of mind of seeing him not as a troublemaker, but as a suffering substitute for your sin? And the second thing is for us this morning, for those who have experienced that, we just reflect all the more as we come to the Lord's Supper. Just an incredible gratitude, an incredible joy, an incredible love for him for giving us what we did not deserve and for taking upon himself what he did not deserve. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning. We thank you.